remember when they said Uber wouldn't work? You're going to pick up a stranger that some random ass app is going to take you to in the middle of where who knows who, and they're not going to mug you and kill you, and then you take them to another undisclosed location. Like, yeah, right. And now we have these multi-billion dollar companies. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. When I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast Show. I'm your host, Jake Harris, and today I have an amazing, fantastic, stellar guest, Sam Wiegert. Sam is, well, I knew him as the Karate Kid or Karate Sam. He has reinvented himself into a co-living guru. He is now pushing on 300 units. That is massive, and actually he's now making seven figures in this business, and he's taken that from... a guy that was teaching karate at 13 years old to now building out this empire and helping others along the way. It is super fascinating. And actually he has a amazing free offer for people that stick with this to the end of the podcast to listen in that he's going to give out some free coaching and tutorials and lots of other things at the end of the show. So make sure you hold on for that. This exciting episode with Sam Wieger on co-living from karate kid to multi-million dollar co-living guru. Let's jump right into it. Sam the man, I am super stoked to have you on the show today. Um, Man, has it been like six years or something like that? I feel like, and I remember you getting on stage, you know, with Ken Wimberly and you're getting up there and you're high kicking karate and stuff. So I was like, karate, Sam, I know you, but dude, you have evolved like so much, you know, in the, in the last, I guess it's been six years or pretty close to that. Right. Yeah. yeah. At least, uh, yeah, at least, man, I feel like it's been years. Um, it's good to see you again. Good, good seeing you as well. I mean, get to get to see you. And obviously the people that are listening, we get to at least get to tap into the, the conversation that we're about ready to have. So I'd love so, you know, for you to kind of walk us through, you know, do an intro, take a few minutes of that, you know, introduce yourself. And then there's some really interesting things that I want to dive into. Not only, you know, the karate, and I know you've kind of exited that, but like the co-living and the coaching and all the other things you have going on. It's like super exciting for people to uh, hear what you have to share. Yeah, dude. 
Thanks so much for having me on. This is an honor. This is an opportunity. I've really, I've respect, I want to say this first before I dive into that, man. Like, I've always respected you and what you've done. You're just, I feel like you're one of those brilliant players out there that really knows his stuff, really doesn't, anything I've ever heard you talk about, you do not just, like, cover at a surface level. I feel like anything you ever do, you're, like, super deep into it. So I just, I've always appreciated about you. Like, an honor that we're actually getting to do a podcast together. I'm, like, really excited. So appreciate that a lot. Um, but, uh yeah, man, I was known for a huge period of my life as the karate guy. I mean, I, I literally grew up in a small town in Virginia, and literally, like, if if somebody met me at the gas station, they would have said, that's Sam the karate guy. Because it was, like, a town of 2,000 people, and everybody knows Sam the karate guy. And I was the guy who would, like, accost you, I'm using that word playfully, but, like, accost you in the parking lot being like, I'm doing a survey. Would you mind answering three questions and invite you to come to my karate school, you know? And that was how I built my first martial arts school is this, like, just really grassroots, rough, tough marketing kind of town of play. But... You know, I, I'm I'm from a big family. I'm homeschooled. I had this like really unique upbringing that kind of gave me this desire, this hunger to be successful in life. And uh, coming from a big family and a middle kid at that, you kind of realize quickly that you either have to do something really bad to get attention or really good. <laughs> Thankfully, I was like, I'm going to become more successful than all my friends. And that's how I'm going to hopefully get attention. Um my friends don't pay me any attention now, so I'm not sure it's <laughs> those friends back then. So I'm not sure it actually worked, but hey, it, it was a great strategy at the time. It got me moving. So I was the karate guy for the longest period of time, man. We can dive into that if you really want, but I'll give you a high-level intro. I was the karate guy. I, I built, I scaled a, a, a chain of brick-and-mortar schools, and then we built an online program that I'm really proud of. We were teaching, we were teaching virtual martial arts in like 20 live live virtual martial arts in like 28 different states we had a bunch of students in canada i was kind of a, a covid baby if you will and through this whole period of time i'm investing in a really niche real estate asset class that i'm sure we're gonna dive into and talk about and uh just recently i'm proud and happy to have made this transition fully to the real estate stuff which i'm really excited about i love i've got a whole story behind that but that is that is who I am. I went from the karate guy to now I'm the the co-living guy. You know, some people call it house hacking, shared housing, room rent, rent by the room, whatever you want to call it. That is what I'm, you know, quote unquote, all in now, all in on right now. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we'll definitely dive into that because I have lots of questions around the space and all also like I have questions for you because I was like, to me, when the first discussed kind of the co-living, someone was talking to me, I was like, that sounds like the worst version of real estate investing uh, that you could ever <laughs> imagine. Like, I was like, what? You got like 20 houses with 80 tenants? Like, oh my gosh, punch me in the face <laughs> or, you know, high kick me or learn karate moves. So we'll definitely dive That's into that funny. in a few. But I actually want to go back to, to do the karate as far as like yeah. you're taking that from its infancy, from being the karate kid you know, cause kid, you're 15 or so when you oh, opened your young. studio and then yeah. you grew that to multiple brick and mortar. And then you transitioned to something that was digital online. And I think just that in itself is a tremendous, you know, uh, journey. And so we don't have to spend a lot of time cause I want to make sure to leave time for sort of yeah. co-living, but like kind of walk that through and kind of your own evolution and some of the like problems, the sticking points that you had from the initial one to then scaling brick and mortar. And then the, you know, and then we'll just start with that and then we'll dive into the digital kind of the COVID baby, so to speak. Yeah. I really, I really wish more people remembered the power of what it's like to have someone that believes in you. 
That's the theme of this story, man, is because I'm thir- here I am, 13 years old. Someone pulls me aside. My instructor, my martial arts instructor, pulls me aside and says, Sam, I think you could run this school. Like, And he was burnt out, so he was like trying to find someone to sell it to, and he was just like, I was a sharp kid in class, not introverted, but I was, I was... I was a sharp kid in class training hard. You know, that's really my thing is I just showed up, trained hard, wanted to be a good martial artist. And he said, I think you could run the school. Man, the power of someone saying that to you, and I don't think it changes as an adult. You know, I, I had a conversation with one of my mentors, David Osborne, who I know you know very well. I actually had him on my podcast, uh, I guess it was last week. And just his belief in me, it still kind of hit me. Maybe that means I have dad issues or something. But like, ultimately, it was like him saying like, Sam, you're heading in the right direction. Like, I believe that you could be this in that space. It's like... Man, so that was a really big piece of how I got to where I got to. And if I didn't mention Master Arthur and Master Clemens and my dad and my mom, who were just like, gave me the loan at 15 years old to buy this school. Now, granted, it was like a $20,000 loan, $15,000 loan, I think it was, but I'm 15. You know, I'm spiking my hair, so I look older. And I'm like, like, like I'm really trying to like make that. And then my parents were like, oh, we'll be there with you every night because, you know, I'm like 15. And what if someone gets hurt and I need to call the ambulance or whatever, you know? And like my parents came like twice <laughs> and, and, and my parents were busy. They had eight kids. Like they had stuff going on. So they just, but um, yeah, I mean, so ultimately the first one, you know, like anybody in business, it's all just, you, you know, I have a bunch of friends that run like chiropractic, you know, they run their own chiropractic center. They're, they're one location. And man, on, on one location, it's freaking hustle. It's just eat what you kill. You don't have a lot of money for staff. You don't have a lot of money for advertising. Like you're just out there hustling, grinding. And for me, that literally looked like walking. As crazy as this might sound, it worked. I walked into parking lots and I gave my card out to everybody in that parking lot. I would stand in front of the CVS for three hours until I got my five appointments, right? And I tell the story a lot. But ultimately, um, yeah, ultimately that was the hustle and grind that it took to build the first one. And, 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 And from what I've seen of other businesses, you know, that's, that's a similar hustle and grind. You got to just go, you got to create enough cash flow in your business until you have some extra, you can then invest in staff. And so my staff happened to be my siblings because I could trust them. So I'm a huge fan of like hiring close to you. I really am. Some people say I could never work with my brother or my sister, man. I was harder on my siblings than anybody else. I'd fire them faster. And you know, it's just like, it worked for me. So hiring friends, hiring people that I could trust with the money and all of that was really important. And so I'd make those hires and, um, you know, ultimately moving to the second school, the biggest mistake I feel like I could have made would be to go from school one to school two and have signed a five-year lease, another five-year commercial lease. Because I was going from a small town to a bigger town. I was going from Amherst, Virginia to Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where University of Virginia is. It's not a big city, but I was considered the big city at the time. And like what most people do, I feel like in this category is they like, they go sign that big lease because they've had a little bit of success. But I humbled myself, and on that second location, I walked into a the Cavalier Inn. They since tore it down. It was that old. The Cavalier Inn at the University of Virginia. And I walked in. I said, do you have a conference room that I could rent two times a week? And they're like, yeah, we got this one small one. It's 20 feet by 20 feet. I said, great. How much would you charge me to rent it for two nights a week? They said, 400 bucks. Now, Grant, look, like if I had gone and signed a commercial lease, it would have been like six or seven grand a month. So I... I, that's where I grew my second school, right? I started again from ground up and it just, I did it with no debt. I did it. I did it with like cash flow on month one. 
And so, so many people, I feel like, just don't focus on, they focus on the big things, the school and getting it all set up and flyers and this and that. And I was just like, no, it was very grassroots marketing for me. So I'd say, if you're asking about sticking points and what I feel like was, was a key to the success, definitely diving in, building that second school from scratch. That school went on, by the way, to become, to go into the top 1% of all martial arts schools in the United States under, I built it, turned it over to my brother because I brought him over and then he really took it to an, a, a completely another level. I mean, it's a world-class school, still is there today. Charlottesville, Virginia, we just recently sold it off. Um, that being said, you know, from that point on in the martial arts business, it's just all about people. Like systems to some extent, but like, man, we don't even really sell a widget. We don't sell anything. All we do in martial arts is sell a feeling. If you walk into a martial arts school, it's literally a big empty room. Like, what are you selling? Like, I'm selling you standing on this, the spot on a mat, and I'm giving you a feeling. And if I don't, get, if you don't get that feeling, then like you're gonna quit, or you're not gonna pay, or your kid's not gonna come back. And so, really, really, really hiring, training, inspiring the right people became a key to my success in the martial arts business. Now, I, I think that's a key to success in a lot of businesses, but in martial arts, I think just think it's like just amplified because it's such a personality based and built thing. Um, and so, yeah, creating new staff members and then I just open another one and it creates new staff members and then I would just open another one. I mean, ultimately giving people a vision, we started profit sharing around that time. I think that was a key to some things that we did, like bringing people into the business, not keeping the profit for ourselves, but giving them a path to work up to 25 or even 50% of the profit share of their school was a big key, I think, to our retention uh, of, of those staff members. So, Hey, I realized I was in a staff based business and I realized I had to retain those people, which was, which was really valuable for me. I mean, I could keep going with different things that I felt like I felt like, you know, helped or supported, uh, me in that, in that growth. But ultimately it was just a vision, uh, to move forward. And I, I really felt like just taking care of the people was the biggest thing for me and hiring people close to me was really, really, really helpful. Yeah, I love that. I love that even that the concept of like the grassroots, you know, um, uh, the shark guy, uh, Damon John, you know, yeah. I, I think it was yeah. him. He, he wrote a book, you know, The Power of Broke, you know, or yeah. something like that, where you're like, cuckoo, cuckoo, like because he, he only had so many shirts. So he'd give it to like a rapper or something like that to be in a, in a, you know, music video. And then was like, all right, uh, cool. Can I have that back now? <laughs> like, you know, can I get that back? And they're like, wait, what? So it, it bred this whole like exclusivity, you know, kind of thing of it. And he was yeah. like, dude, I was just broke. Like I only had that one version of it. So I love that. It's and I story. hear that in your story of like, Hey, what would it cost to rent that room two nights a week you know, or two or, you know, whatever, two nights, you know, I think it was a week, right. yeah, you know, like that's not a big price, um, versus signing commercial lease. And so most people think about it. And I think that having money sometimes is a disadvantage, um, of the way that you set yourself up. Like you can actually set yourself up for failure when you're coming into it too well capitalized and especially in a, in a, so in well a realm like right now, venture capital in the past several years where they just threw money at stuff. And you're like, you guys don't even run a good business. Like you're not even like, you don't have revenue. Like how does this yeah. work? And so that's, what's always like been one of my, like, I don't understand venture yeah. capital. Again, it's yeah. like, I'm not smart enough to understand how then they're like, well, you're, we're just going to run negative profit on WeWork forever. Right. And then it's right. going to be worth a gazillion <laughs> dollars. You just don't get it. And I was like, you're right. I don't get it. So 
I would love to find out, like, you know, once you figured out like that staff based business, what did you do on like location three, four or five that, you know, on that you kind of learned in that process um, from a business operations that maybe you didn't have when you were expanding to that second location? Yeah, for sure, man. It's a great question. And I want, I want to just piggyback for just a quick second on the mentality of sometimes not having money leads to creativity. I think I learned that through the book Profit First. And he gives this amazing analogy that I thought about while you were giving that, that story, which is a brilliant story, where he's like, what do you do when you go to brush your teeth at the end of the night and you pick up the toothpaste and it's pretty damn empty? Like by anybody else's standard, it's empty, but you don't have another tooth. You don't have another thing of toothpaste. So you freaking like roll it up, you get on your elbow, you push it down, like you get a little bit more toothpaste out of the out of the out of the out of the tube, right? And he's like, that's how profit first works. If you if you're stocking money away, if you're not using this certain percentage, you figure out how to do it with less. And I just that always stuck with me because I was like, yes, that's how money works too. Like if you don't have it, you figure out how to be successful without it. If you have it, you use it. And sometimes it's not always, sometimes it's the killer. He would say that he's like money sometimes is a killer of creativity. So brilliant, brilliant, brilliant point. But, um, so yeah, what did I, what did I learn location three, four, and five that I didn't know location one and two? Um, well I did, the first thing that comes up for me is I just, I was, I was not, uh, you know, Harvard, I was not educated, right? I, I dropped out of college. It was really a trial and error process to, to build multiple locations. I mean, truly, truly, truly. Um, I can think of this one time where I bought two schools from an operator and I thought I could run both of them with just coming in, being Tony Robbins, inspiring everybody, and then hoping they'd be successful. What actually happened was I spent my life savings at that point. I was probably like 21, 22. And everybody quit because they were like, who's the new guy that's like really cocky. So now I was like running two schools with zero staff. And I ended up like turning around a week later, calling the guy I just bought the school from being like, please take the school back. Like you can have it. I know I just bought it from you. I don't need a refund. Just take the school back. And then we like, he was like, he said, yes. And then he called me one day later and said, actually, I'm not going to take it back. I'm said too bad. You already said, yes, I'm not signing the lease. I'm not signing the, the assumption of the lease. And he's like, fine, I sue you. <laughs> I just turned this whole thing, right? Like, so I think for me, I had to learn some lessons the hard way is what I'm really trying to say. And, you know, I think I learned the, maybe, maybe one of the lessons is just that in our business, in martial arts, there's a culture and, and, and none of those people were a part of our culture. And so even on, on, when I bought those schools on paper, those staff members looked amazing. Like on paper, if you just stacked them up, but none of them knew Sam, none of them adhered to me, no, none of them had any loyal to me, none of them really fit the kind of inspirational, you know, I used to call myself the Tony Robbins of the martial arts world, right? Like none of them really fit that mold. And so like, I didn't know that. And so they just like, it was the, that was probably one of the biggest like hits and upsets. And I thought my life was over and it was this big thing. And I got depressed for like a year. What did I learn? I learned that culture is incredibly important, right? Like they always say, you know, I learned this from Tony. He says, you ask three questions when you hire a new staff member, like, can they do the job? And all these people that I quote unquote bought can do the job. Second thing is, will they do the job? You know, is it, is it in alignment with their nature? 
um, well, they do it long term, not just for a short period of time. You know, if you have an a, if you have an introvert and you put them in sales, or it's, that's not a good example because introverts make great salespeople sometimes. But you know, if you have a, you have a super extrovert that just needs to be out in front of people and you stick them in the desk behind, you know, as an accountant, is he really is it really in line with their nature? And the third question you should be asking before you hire someone is, are they a good team fit? Do they fit my culture? And so, uh, I didn't ask those three questions before I dove in, and that led to one of my biggest failures. I would say in business, one of my biggest upsets. So again, I know I'm kind of reinforcing the same point of like, man, it's, it's people, it's, 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 it's creating that, but that, that in my business, man, like it's not hard to sign leases. It's just not hard. All of my leases were actually corporate guaranteed leases. Like everybody says it's hard to get, like I was a small business, but I would negotiate like no personal guarantee on five to seven year leases in a, you know, B minus a, you know, B plus a minus, you know, shopping centers. And I'd have these corporate guarantees. So that part's not hard. Putting mats in a mirror in a martial arts studio is not hard. And I would argue it's the same for a yogurt shop. Like signing a lease on a yogurt shop, every focus is on that. It's not hard. Opening a bakery, like finding the equipment, not hard. But like the harder part is who's going to run the thing and how much money can I actually make from this thing? What's the revenue? So I'd say the second big lesson that I had to recognize is that as much as I wanted to focus on serving my students... And we were a huge service-based organization. But I would sit down with my staff and I said, how many of you, I said, what, what business are we in? Well, we're in, we're in the martial arts business. No. What business are we in? Oh, we're in, the, we're in the karate teaching business. No. We're in the business of sales and marketing of martial arts products, services, and supplies. End of story. You want to go teach martial arts? Just go teach in your basement. Like if that's what you want to be in, right? If you just, oh, I just want to teach. Cool. Go run a, don't run a business. Don't start a business unless you're in business for business to make money. Right. And that would, that was kind of a touchy subject in the martial arts world. Cause everybody'd be like, well, no, we're artists and our, our, our art is pure and we teach jujitsu and we don't teach any of these other arts and jujitsu is the best. And it's, it's kind of that vibe in our industry. So when you walk in and say, you guys are running a school, your rent is eight grand a month. You're in the business of making money. There's real put off for those people. I don't care what you are. If you open, if you're signing a commercial lease, you're in the business of making money, like just straight money, right? Like, and so teaching that, communicating that, getting my team to understand we're in the business of making money because I don't care how well you service the money. I'll tell you this. I've never taught an amazing martial arts class. Like I taught for 15 years. I'm an amazing martial arts teacher, but never once have I taught an amazing class. Someone ran over, whipped out their checkbook and ripped me a check for 10K. Never. Never has it happened. Now, I've gone in the office, showed them a program, sold them on the vision of becoming a black belt, and then they've written me, like, that's the business we're in. Now, do you have to service the membership? Well, of course, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying you can't service members unless you make money. So this may seem very obvious to people like us that are entrepreneurs, but in my, you know, I think it's the Michael Gerber uh, or, who, who says, you know, like, most entrepreneurs are people who are just artists. They want to, they want to, they want to have a product and they're kind of have an entrepreneur seizure and they forget that like entrepreneurship is actually making money. So man, that was one of the, that was a hard, hard lesson I had to work and I had to really drill that into my team on a consistent basis for them to understand that. And, uh, but when they started to understand that and they started to understand that their paycheck came from us making money and we started to do the profit sharing and the commission, man, it really, that was really what was uh, the method to our madness kind of in that, in that season of growth and expansion. 
Um, dude, I, I love that. And, and, and so many things, exactly. Even when we'll dive into this in your co-living is the who's going to run it and the people kind of component yeah. of that. And the the profit alignment that I think um, artists in general are afraid to make money. Um, and I don't care if it's a martial artist, if it is a photographer, a videographer, yeah. like whatever those things, like they, they, um, and to be honest, a lot of small business owners are the same thing. Like yeah. the ones that have the one yeah. location, the, the ones that do that is because no one really teaches this at, you know, to the level of just being in the trenches and then experiencing like, wait, you're actually not profitable. The vast majority, and people talk about this all the time, like business buying opportunities. Look at how many baby boomers that are retiring and, you know, these nine gazillion businesses that are going to be, you know, for sale soon. But I was like, of those, I would bet you 90% of those businesses are not good businesses and are not profitable. Like they probably yeah. make less money than if they worked for someone else. Like if I went and worked for Sam or, you know, whoever bought your karate studios and I just worked as like a manager there, I would probably make more money yeah. than the vast majority of martial arts schools that I, if I was the owner, like I make more money just being employee punching the time clock going, all right, see you later versus all the risk and the stress and all the other things that the vast majority of martial art, you know, studios and karate schools that exist out there. I bet you, um, that's the reality. Again, I don't have actually hard data on that. That is just my opinion of being in business for 20 some odd years that the vast majority yes. of them are not profitable or not good businesses. Dude, it's hundred percent true. And you'd have less stress, right? You'd just be able to show up and leave. Everybody says, everybody, everybody, I, I do. This is the, I'm sure you can relate to this. When someone says, I'm going to be in business. I want to be in business because I want to be my own boss. And I always chuckle at that one. I'm like, because in martial arts, like you go from having one boss, if you're working for me, to literally having 400 bosses, every student becomes your boss, every student you need to cater to. Uh, so it's just like a funny thing when people say that. But. Well, let's dive, dive in. So COVID baby, the digital online space. And obviously that I think is, is infinitely scalable. You know, like you said, you, you, you know, you have six brick, brick and mortar locations, but now all of a sudden you're teaching people in 23 States. You're doing it live doing that. So, and, and obviously COVID caused a lot of businesses to go through a certain level of stress. So like, how did that come about? And then how did you build that uh, part of your business? Hey, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about something I get asked about quite a lot. Who does my social media video edits? Well, lucky day, I'm going to share that now. It's Fat Unicorn Media. Whether you're in real estate or not, Fat Unicorn Media is super clever with some very exciting video edits on the short form video content. And they specialize in it for real estate professionals. They know how to talk like real estate pros because that's exactly what they do as their niche specialty. If you're looking to elevate your video content and social media game, visit them at Fat Unicorn Media. 
www.ebaymartinsonmarketing.com and book a free 15-minute call to see if they can help you too. It's been a game changer for me. It's freed up so much of my time. They are literally the who, not the how. I believe it'll work for you as well. Thanks to Fat Unicorn Media for sponsoring today's episode. And now back to the show. Yeah, man, with tons of tons of creativity. I think the best people in business, it, it, this is why it's so important to, to I, Jeff Hoffman is the founder, one of the founders of Priceline. He's one of the billionaire founders of Priceline. And one of the, one of the greatest things I learned from him was, I, I, gosh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what he calls it. He has a name for it. You might even know, Jake, but it was um, where he would just, I think it's like every Monday morning, he just sits down at his desk and he just follows wherever his brain takes him. So if he sees an article on whale watching, he reads the article, even though he has no interest in whale watching. And then he, that takes him to, to submarines. And so then he clicks on submarines. He does this random ass thing where he just like brings all this random information into his head. And so this is kind of where the COVID baby. So obviously COVID happened and uh, I started to kind of cross pollinate. So at this time in my life, my wife and I went to this huge mega church. It was actually one of the fastest growing churches in the world. It's called Elevation Church. It's based in Charlotte. So they've got this main pastor, you know, 30,000 people are coming to the main campus, but then they have like 28 satellite locations that they blast him to, that they have their own bands at each one of those locations. And I always thought this model was fascinating. So one day COVID happens and I'm like, again, here, here's, the, here's the benefit of cross-pollination and, and learning about it different industries and reading books that you would never read before and going to industry conferences on industries you're maybe not even interested in. You go, you learn something. I said, what if I could have one martial arts school? have main teachers at that martial arts school and blast that to all the other schools. Cause the problem in the martial arts industry is like, even no matter how many training I did, I still walk in and one guy's blasting country music. Cause that's what he wants his people to work out to. And the other guy's doing dubstep. And it's like, how consistent really is this experience? Like across the schools. Right? So that's what I created, man. I went to all my schools. I said, and I used COVID as kind of a little cover up to do this or as an opportunity, I should say more than a cover up. So I go in, I install big speakers in all my schools, which we had speakers, but not like big ones. I install these huge projectors with drop-down TV screens. And I basically, we, we decided on a model that was hybrid. It was going to be, so I would film these high-quality class experiences that were pre-recorded, like high-quality though, with like good editing and sound effects and the instructors right there walking people through everything. And then what they would do is they would say, all right, guys, we taught you the move. You know, they would be looking at the camera as if they're looking at everybody in every studio and everybody online, too, because this is everybody that was learning online. All right, guys, you have five minutes. Go be with your in-house instructor and go practice that move. We'll see you in five minutes. Boom. Screen switches. Timer comes on. Dynamic. The music I want to be played in the class experience comes on. Like, right. And so like then. So then what happened is I did that. It worked. I implemented that all of my martial arts schools. Now I didn't need three full-timers on the floor. I could do with one full-timer because everybody was focused on these huge screens. And then I realized like, wait a second, I can do this and I can put this in the home of every person who has a TV, which is every person, right? And so what happened, what it would happen is they would be watching their TV screen and they would have an instructor on Zoom with them. So when we would say into the camera, you have five minutes to go practice that reverse punch, they turn to their Zoom instructor and their Zoom instructor is just chilling, watching them and be like, all right, guys, you heard them. So it's like this cool mixture of like, I'm watching something that's pre-recorded that I can use as many times as I want. I recorded it once. And then they have, they do get that still kind of live feel because it's martial arts and you, there's details and techniques and you can break your wrist if it's like a millimeter off kind of thing. So 
that's what we built and I got it from mega churches. <laughs> like, and mega churches literally do this exact thing. They blast the main pastor, but the satellite campuses have their own bands that are live. So I like, I just, it, it was that, it was a combination of seeing Tony Robbins and how he built his virtual studio. It was like just combining all those ideas. And so that, I, I, I could have spent way more energy time scaling that, building that. And, and I think the honest answer, Jake, is just like, my heart wasn't fully in it. I was doing a lot more, COVID allowed me to transition to real estate and co-living, which I'm extremely passionate about for a variety of reasons. And so it didn't, I, I've since transitioned out of all of that and sold it. And, and I hope it scales and there's a huge need for this type of training. But, you know, it's like any other thing. It's like, it's easy to say I'm going to scale it. But if you're like actually going to scale it, you need time, you need energy, you need, you, you need like, it needs focus. And I just wasn't willing to put my focus there. Uh, I love that story. And, and honestly, like, I feel like it magically, you know, not magically. I, I think there's a divine guiding in, you know, these things of the unique genius that is Sam and we'll say Rachel as well, your wife, as far as your, yeah, you know, course. the combined of that is that, you know, God has laid out a path for you and the, the, the snowballing of skill sets that you've developed on this to, you know, the, the martial arts and brick and mortar to a digital to now what you're doing. So this co-living right. thing is as far as that you've started a niche investing into. And then I, I think, and I'd like to kind of start with like how it actually got started, you know, the initial uh, real estate investments and then kind of like the digital and the coaching and the programs that you have going on, which to me seem very much in the same vein of martial arts. And maybe, you know, maybe people don't see that transition, but it was like, I see it, it as like, Dude, you're just doing this, but at a much higher level. And I would say not maybe the amount of students, but maybe the price points and also the way that it can impact people's financial lives. Um, so like, let's start with like the beginning. How did you get started investing into co-living or this niche real estate in uh, the, the realm of the world that you're now operating in? Yeah, man, I appreciate you saying that about the flow of life too and the uh, snowball of of talents and skills. I do feel like I've been divinely guided. I do feel like there's a lot of painful surrenders that Gil, my counselor would say, Sam, life is a series of painful surrenders because I thought my life was going to be martial arts forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I was going to have a million schools and I was going to have impact 74 million people through martial arts. Like that was my vision. And so to surrender to that and say, to feel being pulled in a different direction, it's very hard. It sounds good now from where I'm sitting, but it's very hard. And so I just want to acknowledge for any entrepreneurs that may be listening or anybody listening that's going through a transition, whether it's in work or relationships or like, man, those things, hindsight's 2020, we've all heard it, but like it's pain, it's painful in the moment. So I want to at least acknowledge that so it doesn't feel like I just snapped my fingers and I'm in a new career and totally evolved myself. It's like, nah, I held on pretty tightly. Like even as of three weeks ago, I was like 51% owner of two of my best schools because I couldn't let it go, man. And then I go off on this retreat with my COO and he's like, dude, I think you're like, you're holding on, but like, it's not serving you and it's not serving them because you're not serving the, the, the owners, the other owners. So I literally went back and like just seller financed like completely the other 50. I was like, guys, I don't even need more money. You bought into your first 49%. Like take it. I'm sorry. I'm not serving you. This needs to be yours. It's your baby. You run with it. But that's hard. That is hard, man. So yeah. So I mean, the, the way that 
this started, the co-living thing started is it started with my mom. She decided to have eight kids and we lived in a 1900 square foot house. And so imagine eight kids and two parents in 1900 square feet. It's straight up gangster co-living, man. Like it's just what it is. It's four people to a bedroom. It's like commotion. It's, it's learning to get along. It's some fights. It's that's I mean, like living with six, seven, eight, nine people is not weird to me. It is normal to me because that was my upbringing. So I think people need that context before I go, before I tell them I just launched my latest 10 bedroom home. <laughs> like, right? That's the context here, right? I'm just like, doesn't everybody live this way? I lived in the country with, you know, a bunch of people. And so um, that's the origin, 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 origin story. But then I just, you know, for me, I bought a, I bought a condo in Charlottesville. I bought a piece of real estate because it was the quote unquote right thing to do. My mentor told me to buy real estate. I heard real estate went up. I read, I read rich dad, poor dad. And I was like, Oh, real estate seems awesome. And then I just rented out some rooms because I like didn't, I was single and they were empty and I had nothing to put in the rooms and I was quiet. It was like too quiet. So I'm like, I need some company. So I rented out and had some awesome roommates. And just like, I, I really, dude, here's the crazy thing. I do not think I would be in this business if my first roommates had been idiots, but they were cool. Like if they were just total assholes, I would have been like, yeah, F this. But they were awesome. Like we would go out together. They would like, one was like this guy, dude, one was this guy, one of my first ever, like we call them housemates now, roommates, was studying at U University of Virginia. He was like some super smart chemist. And we'd sit up late and he was like, they have a cure for cancer. And he would like walk through how he's like seeing cancer in a Petri dish cured in his lab. He's like, this, and I'm like, like just like crazy stuff, right? And I couldn't repeat 98% of what he shared with me, but I was just like fascinated, right? He was like telling me all this stuff. My point is it was a good experience, right? And I would be willing to bet if you're on this, if you're listening to this and you ever went to college and lived in a dorm, which I did not do, by the way, I was working. I did not go to college and live in a dorm. But from what most people tell me, that was also a decent experience. People usually remember that as a fun time in their life, as an enjoyable time in their life. So that is proof co-living doesn't have to be terrible, right? But that's basically what co-living is. It's, it's, it's dorm living for adults. It's, it's a cheaper way to live. I, I bought this, this condo and then rented out the rooms and I moved to for, uh, North Carolina and Charlotte and I, I bought this house and it was, I just, again, same thing, too quiet, rented out a few rooms. It was easy to do. I had a lot of fun with my roommates. And then it just like one day I'm one day I'm out and one of my first friends in Charlotte, uh, he kind of took me under his wing and was just a really, really, really good friend to me and someone I really respect and admire. His name is Jason. And Jason was a banker for SunTrust at the time, a really high executive level banker for SunTrust. And Jason was good with numbers, like damn good with numbers. And so one day he comes to me and he's like, Sam. I know you're room renting out that house you're living in. Like, how much are you making from it? It was kind of a casual question. So I didn't think much of it. And I was just like, ah, I guess if you count me as a renter, it's like 2,850 bucks. And he kind of saw this little sparkle in his eye. And he was like, really? He was like, you know, that house would only rent for like 1,300 bucks like, to a single family. It was not in the best neighborhood. It was my first house I ever bought. This is, you know, 10 years ago in Charlotte. And I was like, nah, but that's pretty cool. So like, kind of clicked for me a little bit though. I was like, wait, I'm doubling the rent. I only got three roommates. I wonder if I could do this with five people excited for. So I buy this other house, primary residence loan, 3% down. And I'm like, I wonder if I could do it with five. And sure enough, like we had problems. Like I get this call one time from John. John's living in the house. Ring, ring. Hey, John, what's up? Super upset. 
I can't believe it, man. Like last night I'm here, I'm trying to make my lunch for tomorrow. And like, I think Susie, who was the roommate that lived upstairs, I think she ate my peanut butter. I don't, I can't find my peanut butter. And I'm sitting there like, well, goddamn, if uh, I have to deal with this, I'm not doing color anymore. <laughs> but then I went in, I labeled all the refrigerator space. I labeled all the cabinet space. I said, don't touch anything that's not in like room one cabinet space, right? And I kind of fixed the problem, right? It's a very organic process for me. And then I'm like, hey, it's working good with five. Could I do it with six? <laughs> Just long story short, I end up like living with six roommates and my wife meets me and she's like, yeah, I will not marry you if you're still going to continue to live with six roommates. And that's how it went down, man. And I just like, it was fun and it was great. And people were just giving me these amazing stories and telling me that they were grateful to be able to live in a place where they could pay 700 bucks or 800 bucks and everything was included and they didn't have to spend $1,500 plus utilities on a studio apartment. And I started to realize it was a service. I started to realize there was... There, there's a there's a community aspect to it. I started to realize there's something cool to this. And so we created every system we could possibly think of to manage these homes. And I meet Robert Kiyosaki one day, man, back in, I don't know if you were in GoBundance in 2013, I think it was December 2013. Or no, no, January 2014, they brought him into an event. And I run up to him and I'm like, I'm doing this thing. It's like co-living. I didn't call it co-living at the time. I'm like, renting rooms? What do you think? Should I go all in? I'm like, I don't see anybody else doing it. Like literally no one else is doing it. And he goes, Sam, that is the wave of the future. If I were you, I'd literally go all in on that. And he goes, when shit hits the fan, and you know Robert Kiyosaki's a little doomsday-ish. He's like, when shit hits the fan, I, I know how I'm going to break my 4,500-square-foot house into six rooms. And I was like, if it's good enough for Robert, it's good enough for me. And that was gave me the confidence to really move forward with that. Two months later, I have like three houses. I'll say this one thing. I have like two, I have like three or four houses at this time. My buddy Jason, the guy I told you about who kind of gave me the initial idea, he comes back to me and he's like, Sam, I wanted to tell you I quit my job. I'm like, and we, we were friends, so I just hadn't caught up with him in a while. I'm like, wow, dude, like big news. You quit the bank. He was making like multiple six figures. I was like, what are you going to do? He goes, wait, I forgot to tell you something else. I cashed out my 401k. I'm like, okay, what's going on? He's like, I'm all in on room rentals, man. I've been watching you do this. And he's a banker and he's like, I already, I already got a couple houses under contract. Like I'm literally going to, he's like, I already done the numbers. I can retire on this right now. And he was in his like thirties, mid thirties, late thirties. And I was like, I'm so pissed, dude. I was like, you're going to be my competition in my town. It's like, like, I just didn't like, there's millions of people here. And I just got so upset. I actually created this riff in our friendship because he was my competition. And I'm, I'm the only room rental guy. Truth is we need millions of these rooms. We're 7.3 million units short of affordable housing in the United States. The U.S. Department for Housing and Urban Development just came out January of 2021 and said, we believe that co-living can solve affordable housing in America. We will now allow for housing choice vouchers to be used for a room, not a whole house or an apartment, a room. So like they're now subsidizing co-living, right? In that manner. It's a really cool journey. We've got companies like PadSplit and Bungalow and Common and Homeroom that are coming out with thousands of units. They own zero real estate. Bungalow just got a $400 million evaluation. Uh, Passport just got a $180 million evaluation. These are tech companies that own no real estate that are trying to be the Airbnb. So this is Airbnb when Airbnb was like 2010, 2011. So now we're on this space and it's really an honor to be on the cutting edge of this, helping people, coaching people. So I just went on a rant. I'll let you ask whatever questions you want, but that's how I got started and what I think of it now. Dude, that, that is, I love that. And, and actually I, I, the, 
the gangster co-living with, you know, the, the, <laughs> the homeschooling kind of thing. Like, uh, I love that. And that makes so much sense to me because, you know, the same thing, sharing rooms, sharing bedrooms, sharing the things like that. You know, you just like when you have a big family, like that's that's normal. And then actually the same thing that you mentioned, because I remember when in the early 2000s, I had moved to Phoenix and I was flipping some houses and I had this four bedroom house and I think it was just like, it was quiet. Like it was literally like, what do I do? <laughs> like, and there's, there's lots of times, like I just had the television on just to have it on, to have like noise because it, it <laughs> felt so weird to be in a quiet house all by myself. Right. And right. I'm an adult, like I'm already out outside, you know, same thing. I'd been in the army. You know, in the army and we right. slept in these huge like bays where we'd have like four bunk beds or two bunk beds. So four people in these kind of little pods in this giant room. And then it wasn't until you evolved it. And it was just like, so the army, same thing. You, you lived in a whole bunch of this kind of communal kind of area and you connect up. So it was like, after that, I was like, that felt re really weird. And it's interesting. I didn't do college. Like you said, I didn't have that dorm room. And so then when you said that the dorm living for adults. But and again, as a landlord and in the past, you know, cause I have section eight housing, I have some of these others right, as right. the thing I've also had some of the pains. And so maybe I am projecting those bad tenant experiences all in one house. And it's to me, it's like, cause I, and I think I talked talk about it earlier in the, in the show that was like, when someone told me like, oh, I'm doing this, 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 and this. And I was like, Oh dear God, that sounds painful was because I'm projecting some of my worst experiences as a landlord, combining that with all these people living in one house. Right. And the reason I, I kind of go on that kind of long rant is like, I'm sure there are horror stories or, or, you know, war stories that of, co-living and that you have caused you to, you know, develop systems. So like, what are some of those things? And I love that story about how like the peanut butter and the, how you basically like sectioned out some of those things. So I'd love for you to share, like, what have you learned over the years of some of those systems that you've had to put in place that, and I'm sure that have been, you know, from problems that you had to go solve, then you developed a system to, you know, solve that. So like, Talk me through some of like the bigger ones that you had to figure out in that co-living space that maybe would help give somebody that was in the traditional landlord space that's thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds like a terrible way to, you know, run a rental property. Yeah. Well, I'll do, first of all, brilliant question. Very well, well-shaped. I love it. Deep question and brilliant question. So I'll, I'll talk to the traditional landlords here for a second. I'm going to talk on the positive side for a moment, and then I'll go into the negative side. Jake, if you buy an eight-unit building, just an eight, I don't know, an eight-unit an eight studio apartment building, it's got eight units, you know, how many refrigerators do you have? Eight. How many HVC units do you have? Eight. How many dishwashers do you have? Eight. How many, you know, and I could go on. I have multiple houses with eight tenants in them. Guess how many fridges I have? Max two. Guess how many dishwashers I have? One. Guess how many HVACs I have? One, maybe two. So there, I mean, I'm talking directly to traditional landlords because I want them to understand there are some aspects of co-living that are cheaper and easier than running a multi-unit building. 
another another piece. I'm going to talk one more kind of positive piece. We have 250 units. We'll have 300 by the end of the year with what we have in the pipeline. We've been doing this for a decade. I'm the slow grower, you know, for most of these, right? But like in that amount of time, we have had five evictions. 10 years plus, and that's because if you're renting a room in a house, it's a lot harder to squat when your landlord can come into the common area at any moment of any day and slap a big old pink slip pay or vacate notice on your door and every roommate you have or housemate as we call them now knows you haven't paid your rent. It ain't hard. Like people will disappear in the middle of the night, but they ain't sticking around punching holes in the wall. Just doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen often, right? So there, that's my traditional landlord spiel on like how this can go. Now, what do we have that's harder? What are the negative sides? What are the horror stories as you call them or war stories? You have personality challenges. You have the Johnny ate my peanut butter story. You have someone coming home that's a little bit drunk and tries to go into the wrong room. Right. Or, or sort of goes into ends up in the wrong room or whatever, you know, because the other person didn't lock their door or whatever. Right. You're going to you have someone that brings someone over and their significant other is just living with them. We used to have couches in all of the common spaces and TVs. Now, we never had an issue with the couches, but we did have issues with TVs. They became a sore point. Right. Because we would we don't furnish any of the bedrooms. We only furnish the common space. We do that for a very specific reason. We want the room to feel like they're apart. Like I get it smaller. I get those are shared space that you have to use, but the room is the new apartment. And so no TVs because it causes tension and it's always noisy and it's loud, right? Headphone hours. Dude, like at 11 o'clock, guys, like everything switches to Bluetooth. It's actually 10 o'clock on weekdays and 11 o'clock on weekends. Like we don't care. That way if someone complains, we can remind you of the rule that you initialed and we told you about verbally in your membership agreement. Setting expectations from the front of this. No more than five overnight guests per month. Do I enforce that? Do I look at all the ring cameras? Heck no. But if someone complains, I can then call them on that rule because it's a rule. We had a loaded weapon. Like someone just left a loaded Glock sitting on the, on the, in the kitchen one time and the other tenants were just freaking out, right? And we were like, yeah, we probably should make a rule that says no weapons in the common space, Right systems like that those are the those are the i would say headphones hours i say no tvs we 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 did away with couches just because we we were doing like coffee like in when you walk into one of our homes now and it's got it's gonna have a coffee shop vibe so high tops stools coffee bar bar stools at the table you know like that's the vibe it's gonna have but nobody can come over crash on the couch <laughs> ask me don't ask me why that's important, right? Because you don't want someone come, being able to come over and crash the couch. So it's, it is these nuances that you just learn. You put it all in the lease or the membership agreement. You, you vert, we, we make them initial it. Then we get on a phone call. We call it an onboarding call where we're like, we just want to let you know what you've initialed. And if you're not okay, we'll actually let you out of the lease right now because you have to agree to this. There's no smoking on premises. There are no pets allowed in these in these properties. There is no weapons there. And so it's setting those expectations. No more than five overnight guests. Everything is headphones hours after 11. And then we have some cleaning restrictions and things too. Like they have to do, they have to help with cleaning of the common area. And if they're like, F that, it sounds like a chore list. I'm not 10. We're like, no problem. It's 50 bucks a month. And you opt out of that. 
and we get people that opt out of that so we can actually bring someone in. So it's little systems and tweaks. I mean, I just went over a lot. Those are actually a decent amount of like the big ones that we've put in place. There's a ton more little ones, little tweaks and things that we've made. And so I would say right now, and then the and then the last piece with co-living men is you just got to have a good system for when you can't resolve stuff. Johnny calls you, blah, 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 you know, or it's normally two women. That's terrible. I shouldn't say that. It is, the men get our problems too, but like, you know, they'll be complaining, blah, 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 blah. This person, this, this person, they're saying this thing. They're leaving the door open. They're making noise at them. And so just having the ability in our lease or membership agreement to say you get one tree for free transfer to another location if it's not vibing with that house. And then after that, if you're still the issue, you got to be able to give everybody in your community a 30-day notice and you're just, they're just gone. So we reserve the right and it's how we write the lease agreements. It's how we write the, how we write the membership agreements is that 30 days and like, we can let you go. And we'll, we'll pull that plug fairly often if someone's just, ah, like this person seems to be a problem. And it's, I'll be honest, it's a qualitative challenge, not a quantitative one. Cause it's like, wait, is it the person complaining or the person they're complaining about? But you kind of learn to see through the BS after doing this for a bunch of years. And so I have a, you know, I have a full-time property management team that runs this and they do an amazing job. Jess is the head, the head of our, Jessica is the head of our property management department. And she just kind of gets it. She'll, some things will just roll up to her. We have this QR code on the on the uh, refrigerators, and if someone texts our our number or calls in or emails or whatever, I have a problem with so and so. We say, hey, like, fortunately, we do have to have a record of this, so you need to scan the QR code that's on the fridge. They walk up to the fridge, scan the QR code. I hired a professional conflict resolution student to come in and design questions that would get them to see. That A, maybe they're part of the problem, and B, how they can resolve it. So it's a big-ass Google form that they have to get to the end of to submit. That's like, and some of it's just basic. Some of it's like, who's the person you have a conflict with? Did you talk to them? If so, what did you say? What did they say in response? It's it's that type. And like, now they have to get to the end. Now we have a record of it for liability. For all the you know purposes, we need to have a record of it, and we can address it. But it also walks them through a certain number of questions. So these are things, and I could go on, man. This could be like the next hour. We could just chat about little things. But it is truly, I mean, remember when they said Uber wouldn't work? Remember when they said Airbnb would never work? Like everybody's going to trash your house because you're because it's a vacation house and people are going to come in and party and your house will never be the same. And now I have people in my lake house every weekend, right? And somehow it seems to work and we have 30, you know. Remember when they said, how are you going to figure out how Uber works, right? Like you're going to pick up a stranger that some random ass app is going to take you to in the middle of where, who knows who, and they're not going to mug you and kill you. And then you take them to another undisclosed location. Like, yeah, right. And now we have these multi-billion dollar companies. So my point, point say, I say that to shift people's mindset a little bit. I'm like, I get it's nuanced, but so is a lot of stuff that's like crushing right now or, you know, crushing. Yeah, I, I, I love this. And, and actually, I, I think, you know, you know, the, the nitty gritty, just because, you know, and as you said, you know, and I appreciate the, the compliment, thank you for that at the beginning of the show is that, you know, when I, uh, become inspired and fascinated by something and, you know, similar to like, you know, and I think I heard that Jeff Hoffman too, like he just like randomly buys a bunch of magazines and just goes down this That's rabbit it. hole is like yes. exactly the same thing was, is like, 
when I do that, I go down these rabbit holes is like, I love hearing about all that QR code, the system, the, the conflict resolution thing. And I bet you probably going through that Google form, you know, solves like 80% of the problems that you ever would have had. You know, it's just like somebody wants to be heard and complain about, you know, complain in general. And you're like, all right, we'll look into it. And it's like, I'm, I'm good now. Or, you know, something along those processes. It's like, the fact that you've been down that path and you have, you know, 250, almost 300, you know, units by the end of the year and scaling that. And that kind of leads me to like what you're doing now that I think is probably, you know, maybe going to be your higher calling that you, you, you make even more money off of than having hundreds and hundreds of, of, of rental units is the coaching. So like dive into that, like, what are you doing now in this space, especially around the co-living? Cause I mean, we could spend another hour or two hours or even more, you know, on these topics because, um, revealed knowledge of being in the space again, being in the trenches as a business owner is going to give you so much more insight than what you could read in a book or watch on a YouTube video or the courses. So tell me about what you're doing now with that coaching and that, you know, what you do for, for people looking to get into co-living. Yeah, man, it, this is going to be a flashback moment to something you said earlier on this show, which is that there's a divine guidance in all of this. And so, you know, I know you were just hanging out with Brandon Turner last week and, you know, I, I know Brandon Turner decently well. And it was at a go, it was at a go abundance event where he just said, Hey man, let's get you on the podcast. Like, let's get you on. And this was when he was hosting bigger pockets. And so I got on bigger pockets and I had zero desire to be a quote unquote guru. I actually kind of despised the like internet marketing space. Cause I think it's fake and it's BS and it's Lamborghinis that people pretend to own, but really they leased for the day and mansions that people pretend to own, but they really just got on Airbnb to shoot their content. Right. And, and all of that. And I just, I'm, I don't want to be that fake. I don't want that. And so I was probably looking at it now, probably judging that space pretty harshly, but I got on bigger pockets, had a tremendous response. And I, I mean, full transparency, man, I wasn't a big, bigger pockets listener. I knew it was a big podcast, but I didn't know it was like, a big podcast, like, like 400,000 downloads in the first 30 days kind of podcast. I was like, so I just started getting really blown up, um, with messages and I was taking all these little five minute meetings. And, and so what ended up happening was I had a partner reach out to me and he just said, Hey man, like we need to put together a, a mastermind, a group around this. And I said, Nope, not going to do it. And it came back to me again. It was like, Sam, I think you need to do this. So through his persistence, he convinced me to do it under one condition. I only get to show up, teach and be brilliant. I don't have to deal with refunds and, and student. I don't not deal with students, but like deal with like all the back end sales, marketing, all of that. He said, I'll do it. He said, I'll do it. I just want X percentage. I said, done. I just want to show up and teach this stuff. I can do it. So that's what we launched. We launched uh, something called scale your real estate is what we're calling it. Um, and I'm calling it that because I want to be principle based, not not tactic based, not like, like co-living is, I believe the fastest, one of the, one of, if not the fastest way in real estate to still get cash flow and achieve financial freedom in the marketplace today, hands down. I think it's better than Airbnb for a variety of reasons we could go into stability, long-term revenue, and where I believe the economy is going. I think it's, 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 I, I want to be in an asset class that's needed, not wanted. Right. And so for a lot of reasons, I believe this is the best 
asset class to be into for the for the everyday person to achieve financial freedom. I believe it's one of the fastest ways to get there. But that could change in 10 years. In 20 years, we could be talking about a different asset class. So Skelly Real Estate is the name of the company. We run these five-day challenges. Somebody can literally go to skellyrealestate.com, sign up and get on the waiting list for the next challenge where I give away free content for five days. And I just teach people about the co-living model. And then we have a we have a course that we teach. We have one course called Financial Freedom University. The, the actual name of the course is 12 Months to Financial Freedom University because it is a 12-month sprint. It is, it is, and I get on this because like Pace Morby is arguably one of the biggest guys in like the coaching space. Like he's his his course stuff is even bigger than Grant Cardone's right now, from what I hear. And so like everybody's like, well, you pay one fee and you're in for life. And I'm like, that sounds like a great way to get someone to never take action. I had a mentor one time who's, who was a coach, a high dollar coach, thousands and thousands of dollars a month. And he said, Sam, you want to know how I get, he's like, you want to know how, how I have so many clients and I take so few calls? I said, no, please tell me. He goes, I tell people they can call me anytime. <laughs> and I just started laughing. He's like, I am dead serious. I tell all my clients they can call me anytime. And they never call me because they can call me anytime. So I'm, I know that's like Pace is trying to set the standard in the coaching industry for like, cause you think you pay the fee and you're like in for life and he makes it this great pitch. But like, I like that we're 12 months because people get in and they got a fire under their butt. They have a sense of urgency. They're, they're taking action. We give them all the resources. So that's one of the programs and the program calls inner circle. They get more direct access to me and they get access to what my white glove service, which is a, a company so when I first started acquiring these properties and I started scaling really fast, it was, you know, for me, fast is like buying a property a month. It's not fast by some people's standards, probably not by Jake's standards. That's not fast, but my standards, that's fast, right? And I'm buying these properties, but I created a small company to acquire these properties for me. I created, you know, I brought in the acquisitions guy, I brought in the construction guy. And so I created this company and I said, you know what? I started using this company to acquire properties for my friends. And it was just a lot of work. My friends didn't understand co-living and they were like picking it all apart. And I said, I'm going to stop doing it for my friends and and family, to be honest. And I'm going to only do it for people who are invested in this. I'm a, dad, if dad's listening to this, the offer is still open to you, dad. I still <laughs> use the white glove service to buy the property. I promised him a property. And so now we're doing it. We're using this white glove service only for people in the inner circle, which is a huge value add for someone who just wants to get access to this space, but wants me and my team who's done this for over a decade to do it. So that's the inner circle. It's a higher ticket program. And then we we acquire these properties. We fill them. We manage them. We rehab them. We're just like A to Z for that for people. So I'm excited about it, man. It feels fun. It's very profitable. But I feel like I'm serving. And we're seeing success. We're seeing just so many cool connections getting made in our community. People buying properties. People, people not buying properties they shouldn't be. By the way, that's the number one reason why people should consider joining a course or a mastermind. It's not only to get the info you need to succeed. It is to get the info you need to not fail because you buy one deal in the wrong area that I would know that I could tell you instantly is in the wrong area or not work for co-living. And now you're, or you get the wrong rehab or the, or you rehab it in the wrong way. I've seen that happen with co-living. It's like, man, that's, that's, a, that's 20 grand. That's 30 grand. That's a house you can't sell now because you did it for co-living and you did it in the wrong way. Like there's risk and you need people to know where the pitfalls are. That's why I keep guys around me. And Jake, I don't talk to you nearly as often enough as I should because you're that, you're, that's how I see you, man. Is like at the end of the day, you're knowledgeable and you need people in your life that can say, hey, don't go down that road. It's, it's dangerous. And if you do go down that road, here's the pitfall. You need to stay on the right and then move to the left because this is how this works. So that's what I do for people now. And I'm 
grateful to do it and uh, and excited to keep doing it. That's awesome because it, it, it triggered something else is that so my son, uh, my oldest, is getting into the vending machine business. Nice. Uh, that's kind of been his, his thing. He started as a lemonade stand and then he started painting curbs. And so he goes door to door and paints, you know, the numbers on the curbs out in front of it. And he makes pretty good money. He's eight, he's be nine next month. And so, but he's been saving up money to buy a vending machine. And so that was kind of like my mindset was like, oh, okay, go buy a vending machine. And then you put it, but it was interesting. We got, uh, we were actually on a call. He's at my office here. It, we got on a call with a guy that runs a vending machine kind of like mastermind and course program and other things like that. And he's like, here's what I see. The biggest mistake that people do is they go buy a vending machine first. And I ask him like, where's the location? And they're like, well, I got the vending machines in my garage. And they're like, he's like, well, how do you know it's mm. going to fit for mm. the needs of that location? And he's like, so they do it completely backwards. They do it. And he's right. like, it's more important to get the location and then figure out what that location needs from a vending machine. And then what you can do is you're going to be more profitable, have higher returns, have all the margins, do those other things. So you need to go get locations and then you fill it with the machine. And the whole thing, I was just like, right, right. see, that's a whole thing. I don't know what I don't know. And so I was like, when you're saying that advice to like the thing that you shouldn't buy, you know, the design that you shouldn't do because exactly what the thing, the process. And I think there's so many niche nuanced elements of making it like a coffee shop. Hey, guess what? Club chairs. Great. You know, things hang out, do tables, do those things. Like to me, that was like, aha, like, oh my gosh, that's genius that I just heard on this call that I absolutely learned from you. And so I was just like, dude, that's so awesome because like you've dropped free wisdom and then you said you're giving away free wisdom on these five-day challenges to teach people about that and I go what an amazing gift that you have just like put out there into the world so that like it they may not be the right time for them to join a mastermind they may not have the funds or the 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 the, the you know, to buy a house or to do that or to pay for a program. But I go, that might be the seed that they need for a year or three years or five years down the road. So, you know, tell me a little bit more about that, like that five day challenge, because I want to make sure that we emphasize that, that people can get advantage of that instead of trying to find it via YouTube university and spend five years of trying to learn it, like you're giving it all away in a condensed free version. So where can they find that? How can they sign up for this free uh, challenge? Yeah, man. And I'll, I'll be really honest about this because I had some coaching. So I've done, I think this next challenge in November will be my 19th one, maybe 18th one, 18th or 19th one. And we had some coaches come in and say, Hey Sam, you're giving away too much content in the five day challenge no one's going to enroll in your program because you're just literally giving everything away. And I said, you know what? That, you might be right. So I, for the next three challenges, I like pared down the content like 80%. And I'd like drop a little bit of it and be like, but then you got to go sign up. And like, dude, our enrollments went to zero. I enrolled nobody on three challenges in a row. And I remember the meeting with my team and I was like, why the heck did we listen to that guy that told us we should not be giving? And I just said, forget it. We're going to put good stuff out in the universe. And that's literally, so, so now if you come to a five-day challenge, it's like, there's a whole day on like knowing 
your numbers for financial freedom and setting the stage. Then there's a whole day on selecting the right property. We will literally coach you through finding the best co-living properties. Then there's a whole day on how to fill the co-living properties. There's a whole day on how to manage the co-living properties. There's a whole day on all the rules and systems that you have to have in the co-living. I mean, it's, that is it. It's, and we just said, F it. People want to enroll afterwards. They will. We'll leave that to God. Our job is to provide value, have fun, enjoy our process. And I do, and I do have learned that I do have to talk a little bit more about how things could go wrong. Cause I make this, people get off the challenges and they're like, I know everything, like there is still more to learn beyond the five days. Like I could spend all five days on just the systems. I could spend all five days on just selection, but we cover a lot of this at a pretty amazing level. So yeah, it's super simple to sign up. You just go to www.scaleyourrealestate.com. Page will pop up. Do you want to register for the challenge? It's a hundred percent free. There's like an upsell. It'll like take you and be like, do you want to upgrade to the VIP bundle where you can like ask me questions and get a little bit more personal time if you want to do that awesome but like it's like 49 bucks but you don't have to you can just be in the regular five-day challenge so that's it man it's that it's all the kind of key elements of this asset class how to from how to get involved and how to find the right part to setting the right mind that's actually what day one is about like here's the mindset you need to have for co-living all the way to how do you fill it how do you manage it how do you fill it with zero and ad spend where do you post how, all the all the nitty-gritty we go into so it's a, it's a fun thing to do, and I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do it, do it. and we're seeing we're seeing it take off. And here's the truth. We might be able to solve affordable housing. There's enough bedrooms in the United States to solve affordable housing. Every homeless person, every, every, everybody. We do not have a shorting housing if you start counting by bedrooms. So if we can if we can put that out there, we can help help get literally get some people off the street and and if not, just get I mean, get some people off the street sounds a little dramatic. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but like, what about just taking a 20-year-old who just got out of college or 21 or 22-year-old just got out of college, just straddled with $100,000 in debt and like only got a job making 55K a year? What about that guy? Like he's not going to be homeless probably, but like what about freeing up his income a little bit, you know? So he's, he's he, instead of spending two grand a month, he's spending 800 a month. Everything's included and like he can go travel. He can go buy his girlfriend some flowers. I mean, like, some, and not go more into debt, put it on a credit card. Like, like I don't want to sound overly dramatic with the homeless stuff. Like, sometimes it's just, like, workforce housing, like the servers that serve you, you know, at the restaurants that you like. Like, what about those people? It's that type of housing we're providing, man. And so it is, it is good. It is a beautiful marriage of income and impact. And in my life, and I know in your life too, Jake, we're looking for that thing that can be both. And this is that thing, in my opinion, for me right now. Martial arts was that thing. I was making money from martial arts, and I was, like, directly impacting people's lives, teaching them confidence, discipline, self-defense, fitness. And I'm doing that just in a different space now. I love it. And actually, um, I think this is a perfect kind of closeout of, of the episode because exactly that, I, I think it is – People should absolutely take you up on that, those challenges, that five-day challenge and jump into it if you're interested in the co-living space. Um, any, uh, you know, where else can they find you, you know, as far as if maybe they're not interested in co-living, but they want to, you know, follow you somewhere, your journey. And obviously we didn't even get a chance to dive into, you know, your amazing relationship with your wife and what you guys are doing and some of your Airbnbs and other things. And maybe that'll be a part two episode or something we'll have to revisit, but uh, where can they find you? Uh, besides scaleyourrealestate.com. Instagram's best, at Sam Wieger. That's best. But I'm on all the social media platforms. Uh, Facebook, Sam. Wiegert is spelled W-E-G-E-R-T. 
Awesome. Sam, I just want to take a last moment to um, share with you how much I appreciate you, how you always show up and at least in, you know in my, in my life every time that I've connected with you you know it is there's been times that we've not connected for months or years on end but the, the way that you show up with such a uh, true authenticity and energy and and to be honest it feels like uh, like light and when it is doing something because you are so passionate and you just kind of follow and you know being obedient to that you know that passion and just living into that, it resonates from you. And I see it, I feel it, I feel all these calls every time we connect up and doing those things. And so I believe you are being light in the darkness. And I truly, mm. truly appreciate that. And and humbly, you know, would love to share this message out with more and more people. So thank you for being you, being who you're called to, and living into those that genius and talent. I know it is not all sunshine and rainbows and not always uh, amazing. And there's things that, you know, struggle with that up and down. But the fact that you continue to ply that into this world is amazing. And I love it. Thank you so much, man. That's that's beautiful. You brought a tear to my eye, really. That's that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. It means so much. Cheers. And we will, uh, you know, excited to put this out into the world. Thank you, brother. It was an honor. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.